Porn Cinema Club fans! As many of you may know, uh, this hello at the beginning of every episode is my homage to Robin Williams and Good Morning Vietnam. And I'm here today with... Oh, it's, uh, it's Will Sloan. He's, he's kind of like uh, Richard Nixon. Oh, oh, I am not a crook. Oh, uh, he's, he's, he's kind of like uh, Queen Elizabeth. We are not amused. Oh, he's kind of like, uh, I don't know, give me some other kind of outdated cultural icons. <laughs> I don't know. He's like John Wayne. Wall C here, partner. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Oh, ooh. oh, yeah. Wait, wait. You can't go there anymore, Will. You can't go into the Robin William parody territory that was his bread and butter in the 80s. Because this is going to be, I think, a controversial episode to a lot of people who click on this excited for us to talk about Robin Williams. Are we going to speak ill of the dad? I don't want to speak ill of Robin Williams because we're going to say this a lot this episode. He was a big part of each of our childhoods. Yeah, I'd like to start just by saying that I actually do think Robin Williams was a great actor. And I would even go so far as to say that I like him. Like, when he's on screen, I feel affection for him. When I see that face, you know, he's a very friendly guy to see in a movie. I perk up. I no longer find him funny. And that feels weirdly amazing to say, because when I was a small child, like... If there's one thing everybody could agree on of all ages, all races, all classes, it's that Robin Williams was funny. I spent at least a day a week as a child watching Mrs. Doubtfire. It was one of the three videotapes my dad owned. So when I visited him, uh, me and my brother would usually sit down, pop it in, and just smiles would come to our faces. And revisiting it this week... I remembered the broad strokes of it, but I did not remember one thing that I laughed at as a child. And as an adult revisiting it, oh, definitely, I could not figure out what was the funny stuff. Yeah, it was a baffling experience for me, too, because I remember as a kid having favorite scenes from Mrs. Doubtfire. I remember having things that I thought were funny, like all that shenanigans of him at the restaurant at the end go you know changing between Mrs. Doubtfire and his own guys going from table to table or you know some of those other kind of farcical scenes like him burning himself when he's cooking i i remember as a kid thinking that stuff's funny and i'm watching it now and it it just feels so so lax it feels so badly paced and that's just putting aside everything else wrong with the movie, which which is everything. I mean, if Mrs. Doubtfire came out today, it would be it would be a cat's level disaster. I don't want to get too much into why it's as terrible as it is. I mean, it's right there on the surface, right? Like you see the premise, looks like a parody trailer, but it's not. <laughs> It was one of the biggest hits of its time, and I did not know another child who didn't love Mrs. Doubtfire, which is crazy to me, and shame on the adults that foisted this upon young, innocent children who did not know any better. Wow, foisted it? I mean, as a kid, I loved this movie. You didn't need to foist this on me. I was watching it every week, too. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) But why? What is, like, that magic sauce that made us all fall in love with Robin Williams? Like, who as a person is a thing that popped for the entire world, you know, at his most dominant period? I had a lot of opportunity to think about that this week. Uh, while I was watching these movies, you know, just utterly stone-faced, I'll try to answer, like, as both an adult and a kid, because, as I said, he had incredible across-the-board appeal. As an adult, I think people who liked him maybe had just never seen anything like him. There was Jerry Lewis, you know, there were manic comedians before him, but 
I don't think there had ever been a stand-up who was quite as busy as him, who who was going, you know, who was talking that fast, talking about that many things. His routines were so dense. He was making so many different cultural references. It was exhausting to try to keep up with him. And, you know, that on top of the fact that he is a genuinely talented performer, like he can do those voices. He can he can hold an audience. And as a kid, you didn't know any of the references that he was making. So what was magical about him were the switches from the extreme highs to the extreme lows. And it was an adult breaking the contract that other adults take. The idea of like, you know, you have to be somber. You have to deliver these straight. This was an adult doing what the most excited kid high on sugar would do. And there was something like magical about that when you yourself are a child watching it. Now, for the adults, I, you know, shame on that. Hang, hang on. In fairness to Robin Williams, we both watched a documentary about him this week, which was an HBO doc from a year or two ago. I forget what it's called. Come Inside My Mind, I think it's called. And there are some clips of his early stand-up. I think he actually did have some very funny moments, uh, like in his Night at the Met special, which I think is his definitive, you know, it's his Carlin at Carnegie. Uh, it's his most famous set. There's a bit in there that he does where he's like acting as his own penis and he's talking to his penis and he's like having a back and forth dialogue. And I laughed watching that. I think as a stand up. He was at his best when he was talking about his own demons. And that he wasn't making pop culture references and that the joke was him switching between all of these things. Because when he's talking to his own penis, he's not imitating anyone but his penis. Yeah, and he's talking about something that's real and raw. He's talking about his vulnerabilities. He's talking about his addictions, his alcoholism, his his lusts, you know, his, uh, his insecurities. When he's talking about politics, I think he's like less than useless. But when he's talking about the demons that drove him, I, th- I think he could be very funny. Like me and my family would watch uh, Robin Williams on Broadway all the time on DVD. We love that DVD. And I didn't rewatch it again this week, but I didn't get anything about it. No references that he was making culturally, politically or otherwise. It was just him on stage, waving his arms around, saying words I kind of recognize and sweating up a storm. And that's what I loved about him. Yeah, there are a few bits from Live on Broadway, which, of course, I also saw. Everybody saw it in the early 2000s. There are a few bits in it that I remember fondly. But again, it's stuff like what I talked about. I remember there was a bit in it where he's like talking about he's like struggling to open a condom. Oh, I remember that. And then he puts it like... (laughs) He's like, Aah! and then he's like trying to maintain. He's trying to maintain his erection while he's doing it. Like, I should not have been watching that as a child, but I did. I probably had no idea what they were talking or about. I remember that special ends with him like doing, like uh, pretending to do cunnilingus, and he's like doing it on his own arm, and like that. <laughs> yes. was, that was really funny. Like when he's, I don't know. Like there are certain subjects, most of them like penis or sex related, that I think he was very funny on. But yeah, when he's talking about like Michael Jackson or George W. Bush, and he's just doing voices of like dead pop culture figures. Oh my god! <laughs> I mean, watching Mrs. Doubtfire again. There's a scene where it's just him riffing, and like there's jump cuts to go from character to character, as if like 
during the day, he's like, I'll give you a bunch of options. And the producers went, this is too good. We need to keep every one of them. And as a kid, I had no idea who these people are, but he was doing funny voices. It was great. As an adult, I know who most of these people are. And I'm like, this is so lame. Okay, listen, let's talk about Mrs. Doubtfire because we don't need to go through his life history. We don't need to say that he started on Mork and Mindy and that he did this and he did that. Everybody knows. Did you ever watch Mork and Mindy? I never watched it once. It wasn't something that was in syndication. I rented a VHS of it once. Uh, that was at my local Blockbuster as a kid. So I, I think I've seen like two episodes of it. But yeah, it was never on syndication when I was a kid either. But what was the movie that made him pop? I think it was Good Morning Vietnam because he he did Popeye, which made a certain amount of money, but was not particularly loved. And then he did a couple of movies after that that didn't quite click. But Good Morning Vietnam came out in 1987. And that was a movie where they, I guess, figured out how to harness his particular talent within the context of... A movie, and I'm I'm playing devil's advocate here because I watched Good Morning Vietnam this week for the first time ever, and I fucking hated it. I hated almost every. Uh, I mean, I saw it when I was a kid. I think it was one of the ones that were available because he was nominated for an Oscar for it. So I was like, okay, I'll check this out. I remember as a kid not liking it as well, and rewatching it again, it's like, oh god, it's everything that plays to like Robin Williams' strengths in the easiest way possible, in like a product that is so shameless in the way that it tackles like its subject matter. Like it's, it's racist. It's xenophobic. It's transphobic. It's, um, don't forget sexist. It's sexist. Very sexist. I mean, there's literally a scene where Robin Williams is like, "Ugh, you eat this. And the guy's like, it's fish balls. And he's like, I don't know. Fish had balls. And you can just imagine the audience be like, ha ha. Vietnam is weird and not like North America, which is normal. Oh my, there's a whole subplot in the movie where he he wanders into this uh, English class for Vietnam Vietnamese people, and he wanders in because he's basically stalking this young Vietnamese girl that he wants to bang, and he basically just takes over the class. He like you know goes up to the teacher and says, "Oh hey, uh, how about I uh, how about I teach them American slang?" And then like. He just takes over the class for weeks. Yeah, doing shtick in front of them. And, like, they're smiling and laughing, but it's like, you know, they wouldn't know what he's saying. (laughs) But maybe they were reacting like we did as children. This man is making funny faces and changing voices. It's fun. But in the context of the movie, it's like, no, this is weird. Yeah, and I guess he had to be there in 1987. Those radio routines that he does, you know, where he's just riffing, all of which were improvised, by the way. I don't know. Not only do I not find it funny right now, but it's actually very hard for me to imagine a world where anybody did. But they did. They did. And many people probably still do. And Would you I don't find know. it funny if you were seeing it like in the same room? Because I bet you would. Yeah, probably. In the documentary, they show some bloopers from the sets of his movies. And oh, I could so imagine. <laughs> yeah, they, they yeah. are good. And like, I could imagine being on the set with Robin Williams while he's like riffing because a lot of it depends on like he's puncturing the solemnity of the atmosphere that you're in. You know, he's a big kid, like, trying to make you laugh when you're there. And I bet he was even probably pretty funny when you saw him live. Like, I think it made a big difference when you were sitting in an audience and there he was on stage, flesh and blood. And there was that sense of unpredictability in the air. That raw energy as well, where it's like, what is he going to do next? Where is he going to switch to? 
something like Good Morning Vietnam, though, sets a really bad template for the rest of his career, which is the funny man comes into a dangerous or, you know, stifling environment, and through the magic of laughter, he teaches everyone a lesson. That's right. For Robin Williams, it was never enough to just be funny. Uh, He was also this... Or he was constantly playing this like ambassador for comedy. He was playing this this good spirit who used comedy to heal people, but was constantly being challenged by petty, closed-minded bureaucrats, whether it's like Dead Poet Society, whether it's Patch Adams, the ultimate example. At one point in Good Morning Vietnam, a guy runs in and he's like, you're not doing comedy. Comedy is like uh, slapstick and people that confuse their identities and and i'm like oh yeah that sounds good i'd like to see that (laughs) (laughs) yeah he's constantly running up against this authority figure played by bruno kirby who's coming in and being like listen we don't take too kindly to jokes in vietnam uh humor is an agent of chaos (laughs) you know and it's like the deck is stacked it's not a fair fight nobody would actually be like this (laughs) but you know robert williams is there and he brings a smile to everyone's face and at the end he leaves vietnam i assume they won the war thanks to his laughter i don't know i was kind of tuned out by the yeah. end so it was it was never enough for robin williams to just be funny and but he was particularly i guess vulnerable to being to having that like chaplain disease of always wanting to be sentimental you know because there's something about him like he's obviously a very needy presence you can't be that energetic and that Yeah, that over the top without like desperately craving audience validation. And there's something about his face. He doesn't have the kind of face that was slick like Jim Carrey. He had a wide open face with a big mouth and he wasn't, you know, particularly handsome. Um, He he looked vulnerable. Yeah, I mean, that's why his dramatic performances are so strong, where he gets a chance often to be funny, but it's not central to his character or the plot where in stuff like patch adams it's like we want to let robin go unleashed and it's like oh god no even though i was a kid i loved patch adams could not get enough of it people forget that patch adams was a massive hit and i think it was probably the beginning of the end for him too because after that you know his career started to take a slide i think patch adams was it was like a big hit but it also maybe america was not ready for that much williams because i think i might have like turned them off him forever it was just so pure well after good morning vietnam he moved right into dead poet society just that was his next starring role pretty much and it seems like he was on that upward trajectory of being like a dramatic actor who can also do comedy but you get a sense that like Williams, the reason he's so energetic and all over the place is that he needs that laughter and he needs it like you said so badly that it has to be immediate which is why his comedy like looking at it now we're not in that moment it doesn't have the same impact because it there is that immediacy it relies on so many pop culture things and also you know the old standby it was a different time where you know uh gay panic jokes were the go-to thing or um you know doing a voice of for example an african-american man (laughs) oh he did that a lot (laughs) yep because it would give him an opportunity to switch between registers, and that's what would trigger the comedy. I mean, as a kid, the thing that made me fall in love with Robin Williams was probably Aladdin. I played that VHS endlessly as a kid. And in that character, you have a great um, joke, 
delivery system and one again like i didn't know he was doing uh rodney dangerfield didn't matter it was still funny when you're a kid like there most things you don't know so you kind of take it you take it on face value and since you know so few things the things that make you laugh are funny voices because you can understand that a man in a dress you can understand that yeah and that's basically all the comedy that you have available to you <laughs> because let's move on to mrs dadfire i thought we left but we're right back here again I mean, I don't know what to say, but I just watched this in horror, like a train wreck happening in front of me. I almost want to go through it beat by beat because this movie was and perhaps even still is so popular. And I still think people don't have it in their heads just how incredible, how wrongheaded almost every frame of this movie is. Do you think that the people who are like, I love Mrs. Doubtfire, have watched it in the last 10 years? No. Or Well, okay, they may have watched it in the last 10 years, but they certainly haven't watched it in the last two. I mean, the whole film is a bad dad who doesn't take any responsibility, decides to gaslight his family to be closer to them. Yeah, and okay, listen, we all know what Mrs. Doubtfire is about. Uh, the divorced dad poses as the nanny, which, I mean, right there on the surface... Uh, and and okay you can say it was a different time obviously comedy depends on context but i don't know i i genuinely don't know uh it's true there was a time when this premise seemed totally okay by me but now it's just shocking you know now i'm thinking about like why did i watch why did everybody watch it didn't mcdonald's give mrs doubtfire out with the happy meals did they have a deal like they did with back to the future because that's why i own back to the future maybe i mean i don't know it made over 200 million dollars it was the second biggest movie of the year that's like over 400 million dollars adjusted for inflation and it's strange to watch too because this absurd premise like you can imagine somebody like robin williams friend bobcat goldthwaite making a really funny dark comedy out of this premise but it's tr it's filmed like a John Hughes movie, just very kind of languidly paced. Well, there's no judgment. It's just like something that has the movie is two hours and five minutes. Oh, my God. It moves like molasses and it treats it totally seriously, totally, you know, uh, you're, you're totally sympathetic to Daniel Hillard, played by Robin Williams. Yeah, Sally Fields is a monster for wanting a divorce with a man that destroyed the entire house with a petting zoo that he wasn't paying attention to. Yeah, the deck is definitely stacked. I mean, I'm sure that director Chris Columbus would tell you that he's taking no sides, that it's a difficult situation. But come on, who who is the average person in the audience going to like more this um, shrewish woman who is so focused on career and work or this funny dad who's, you know, maybe maybe a little lax on certain responsibilities, but he loves his kids. He loves his kids so much that he just can, can't be away from them and his, his wife won't let him see them. He has one job and that's to prove to the judge that his life is in order and instead of doing that, he decides to go undercover as an old maid to just keep an eye on his family and also um sabotage any new relationships his wife is trying to have with hunk pierce Brosnan. okay and you can say that this movie is of its time but i'll tell you why i know it was bad and insidious even in its time because they cast harvey firestein as his brother which harvey firestein is there only to say uh don't worry he's in he's in a dress but he's not gay uh, this this is a gay guy. This guy is gay, yeah, but he's not gay. 
He's like your teacher dressing up during Halloween. Hilarious. Right. That means the filmmakers are thinking about these issues. That means they've thought it all the way through and they've still come down on the side of evil. <laughs> yep. Dude looks like a lady. Could not wait for that montage when I'm watching it as a kid. So excited. Him with the vacuum cleaner. Oh, that's gold. There is a reason, though, that a generation of kids fell in love with Robin Williams in this movie. It's because he feels like just the ultimate perfect adult because he's very kid-like. He tells a lot of jokes. He's very manic. He's not perfect perfect. He's not a real adult like Sally Fields. You know, Sally Fields shoulders all the burdens of being a responsible adult and that's not fun and that's not cool she's she's not letting you eat cake yeah it's like you know why sally field can't read charlotte's web to you kid it's because she's working until 10 o'clock at night while your deadbeat dad just hangs around the house yeah but also he he's like he seems like a very gentle presence he's very loving he's got that wide open face he's both like a kid but he's also this endlessly supportive tending father figure who will always protect you right like like he's he's the best of all possible worlds except like being a responsible yeah or being someone sane (laughs) at the end of the movie a judge is like this is not good you are not allowed to see your family anymore because you gaslit them all and dressed up as an old woman just to get close to them. And it's played like, how could the judge do this? And the movie ends with Sally Fields going, if you cared that much, that means I'll let you back into my life instead of being like, we need restraining order against this man because he's going to murder us. Yeah, that's called Stockholm Syndrome. I mean, speaking of that like childlike presence, I think that's why he works very well in something like Jumanji, where you have another movie around him and he can't, like do a bunch of pop culture references or silly voices to make an impact. And I think he works in Jumanji. Jumanji was another one that I watched a lot as a kid. And I feel like if I watched it again, it would still hold up as that adventure movie with a comedic presence portrayed by Robin Williams. There are a lot of movies I think he's really good in. I'm not the biggest fan of The Fisher King, but I think it harnesses his talent very well. I agree, where it's that kind of manicness, but also overlaid with sadness which the manicness works in conjunction with i mean he's great in jack no he's not great in jack that was a movie i was so excited for i think i saw it in theaters like i have a vivid memory of seeing it i saw it in theaters too my first francis ford coppola film even as a kid i was like what is this at the end where he's giving like the the graduation speech as an old man <laughs> yes. I'm like oh my god and then doesn't he doesn't he show his ass no that's patch adams <laughs> yeah that's patch adams i mean speaking of films that he's good in like he's really good in goodwill hunting oh yeah like i think he won an academy award for that movie but then you have stuff like bicentennial man which oh boy that i think that was like one of those breaking point films where even as a child i was like what what is this there definitely came a point when the audience turned on robin williams or you know didn't even necessarily turn on him because when he died he there was an outpouring of grief for him probably like no other celebrity death i've ever seen not even michael jackson i think was was quite at that level like he burrowed his way into people's brains as kids you know at such a formative age and he was such a beloved presence even i enjoy seeing him in movies you know there's something about him that's just so innately likable 
And yet there came a point when audiences didn't want to see him anymore. And the lifespan of movie comedians isn't generally all that long. Most of them get like 10 years. And, you know, he probably got 15. I mean, you say it like he was delivering great work and audiences were like, no, thank you. (laughs) Because, I mean, if you want that breaking point, it's called Jacob the Liar. Like once that movie came out. He actually, you, if you look at his filmography chronologically, he did switch to doing dramatic stuff or stuff that's more challenging because you then have One Hour Photo, Death to Smoochie, Insomnia. So when Insomnia and Death to Smoochie and One Hour Photo came out, they were being hyped as he's taking his career in a different direction. He's doing darker stuff. He's doing weirder stuff. And Insomnia and One Hour Photo did pretty well for him. But then, you know, in a couple of years, he was back with rv <laughs> i was gonna say that the end of his dramatic quadrilogy was house of d oh yeah when he went full simple jack <laughs> yes that's right but yeah rv was his return to comedy and you have never seen more of a man like having a gun held to him off screen than robert williams performance at rv which me and will watch for this podcast why why did i watch it what a waste of time because i had read barry sonnefeld's biography that he recently released and i was like oh he mentions that he didn't work well with robin williams <laughs> it's like well because the movie's terrible it's a perfect example of like rich white uh, suburban family problem movie so it's like it's the dad and he works too much yeah it's a movie that just never comes to life it's never funny it, it's like it, it, if people don't know what rv is and i'm sure you all know what it is i'm sure you're all there when it came out and you didn't go <laughs> see it but yeah it's like national lampoon's vacation but not as funny very low-key the, the gags aren't very good and nobody's likable and it just never catches fire and nobody looks like they're having a good time except for Jeff Daniels as the kooky Southern guy. He's funny. Jeff Daniels is having a ball in this movie and it's another example of like, what were the filmmakers thinking that they try to present Jeff Daniels as like this dumb hick who doesn't know what he's talking about in his first appearance saying that Ernest Goes to Jail is a good movie and we're supposed to be like, "Ah, look at this dumb guy. How dare you, RV? How dare you? Basically, after one hour photo, Robin Williams' career gets pretty sad. There are a lot of comedies oh, like yeah. Man of the Year, or which actually isn't even really a comedy now that I think of it. It's it's a bizarre, what I don't know what the hell Man of the Year is. Wasn't Old Dogs, the movie he made with John Travolta, a pretty big hit as well, though? I don't think it was. I don't think he really did a studio comedy after Old Dogs. I mean, he was in the Night at the Museum movies, but Old Dogs, I think, was pretty instantly greeted as just an embarrassment. I thought it was so popular, it led to Wild Hogs. Uh, no, it was the other way around. It was oh. Old Old Dogs was by the director of Wild Hogs. And you remember that Old Dogs was originally an R-rated comedy that they had (laughs) to... I don't remember that. I'm sorry. I, I didn't go through the, I didn't follow the production of old dogs and variety. This is just one of those facts that when I hear it, I'll never forget it. It started as an R-rated comedy and then it was changed in post-production to be a PG-rated family comedy. And you can imagine how coherently it hangs together after that. I mean, right before Old Dogs, though, he made World's Greatest Dad. Yeah, and I think that's the one bright spot of his late career. And it is it is really good. And I think it has maybe Robin Williams' best performance I agree because he gets to play a human being who is reacting to the situation around him but he still gets to be funny and have like quips here or there but it's an awkwardness that you feel was closer to his real personality when he couldn't be really big and when you can't be really big there's like a balance you have to hit and you see that in the movie for people that don't know it's a film directed by robin williams good pal bobcat goldwaist and that's not a joke they were good pals and 
it's about a um, teacher played by Robin Williams who's a failed writer who's never gotten a book published and his kid is a little shit. For people who haven't seen the movie, I don't really want to spoil it for anyone because the film takes a big turn an hour in. If you read about it, you'll find it. And I actually watched the trailer to see, like, how did they sell it? And the trailer is like, this dad has a terrible kid. (laughs) And it's like, man, people were probably very surprised when they saw how the film plays out. Yeah, but it's a very clever satire, and it leans heavily into the sad side of Robin Williams. But it also gives him, you know, he gives him a certain dignity, too. It allows him to hit melancholy note it it also allows him to play his age in a lot of the other movies Mm. you know he's still this manic sprite or even even patch adams i think he's basically playing younger than he is but in this one he gets to fully wear the 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 weatheredness of his face and body and watching this movie and knowing that he was really good friends with bobcat and he appeared briefly as a mime teacher in shakes the clown bobcat's directorial debut you get the sense that like Robin was a very loyal guy because he worked with uh, Chris Columbus multiple times on Mrs. Doubtfire and Bicentennial Man. He worked with Barry Levinson multiple times on Good Morning Vietnam and Toys. It makes you just wish that like, man, hang out with Bobcat more. <laughs> like he knows how to utilize you in the right way. Yeah, maybe if he'd spent more time with Bobcat and less time with Billy Crystal, we would have less complaints <laughs> about him. Because we did watch that documentary that we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, and, like, Billy Crystal is featured so much in it. Oh, God, I, I just cannot abide Billy Crystal. <laughs> <laughs> at one point, Billy Crystal is like, after Robin got his heart surgery, I left 15 voicemails about uh, pretending to be um, someone who had to fix his, the valve on his car. I just couldn't wait for him to wake up and just have a bunch of laughs he could enjoy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, Billy, I think you're projecting in this case. But I hope what people come away from this conversation isn't that like we don't like Robin Williams, because we do. Love him in World's Greatest Dad. I mean, he's good in Goodwill Hunting and Dead Poets Society. I could rattle off probably 10 movies I think that he's really good in. Popeye, he's really good in. But like the classic image of Robin Williams in his prime 90s comedy phase is something that does nothing for me. If it does something for the listeners, you know what? I'm glad because, you know, more laughter in the world. It's great. Here's what I'll say about Robin Williams in his prime comedy phase. There's that old cliche that, you know, uh, I'm going to talk in a borscht belt comedian voice right now. I'm going to say, you know, there are some comics who say funny things and there are some comics who say things funny. Well, I would say that Robin Williams was definitely firmly in the latter. I don't think in his stand up he said many funny things, uh, but I do think even even in his sta- even in the stand up that I don't like, there's still talent there. There's still a, a whirling ball of energy, and there's still an innate likability, a love, an innate lovability that carried him along. I wonder why I have the nostalgia I do for Jim Carrey but I don't for Robin Williams. It's funny because there are a lot of people who do feel very nostalgic for Robin Williams. And, you know, I think I think even I'm perhaps one of them because Mrs. Doubtfire, I mean, I mean, it's it's catastrophic. It's awful. And yet and it deserves to be remembered as like one of the worst comedies ever made. And yet people don't think of it that way. They don't think about it in the same breath as like Master of Disguise. Which it, which is a better movie than Mrs. Doubtfire is. I gotta admit, I probably laughed more as an adult watching Master of Disguise than I did watching Mrs. Doubtfire. And, you know, the explanation for that comes down to the fact that Robin Williams is a more pleasant guy to be around than Dana Carvey. He's, he's a more mm. lovable guy. 
And that's got to count for something. <laughs> so that's Robin Williams. Uh, Justin, do we have any letters this week? We do have letters. And our first one is from Marcus Scott. And it goes, hello, Justin and Will. Just wondered if you'd ever thought of doing an episode on play-to-movie adaptations. Did you have any general thoughts about what separates a great one as Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf from a forgotten Oscar-bait film such as Fences? Love the show, Marcus. Ah, that's actually a topic that I don't think we've ever discussed because it's so broad. That's an interesting question. I mean, I have opinions, but I think they're kind of like the same opinions that any you know, cinephile has, which are, uh, I like it when they open it up and they reimagine it for the screen instead of just kind of like slavishly restaging it. I mean, the Laurence Olivier Shakespeare movies kind of get a bad rap these days because they're so, they're so stage bound. They're kind of static and they're, they're very much records of the performances. But I mean, something like Olivier's Hamlet is good just, just for capturing Olivier's performance. But I definitely much prefer the Orson Welles Shakespeare movies. But then if you look at Kenneth Branagh's Shakespeare films, they're so lavish and like giant that they kind of crush the words that are being spoken by the actors. Yeah, that's interesting, too. I mean, Glengarry Glen Ross is a good adaptation. I think it opens up the play just enough. It adds some stuff. The Alec Baldwin character, for example, wasn't in the play of that. But when I watch Glengarry Glen Ross, I'm not constantly thinking, oh, this is a film stage play. I mean, David Mamet is a great example in that like a lot of his plays have been adapted to movies. And what's interesting is that because his dialogue is so specific in its unreality, that it's kind of great to watch it in movie form. I mean, Stuart Gordon did Edmund which is a David Mamet adaptation. And that one's really weird because watching it on the screen, it feels even more disconnected. And I think it works to its advantage because it's so unpleasant. I don't think Carnage is one of Roman Polanski's best movies, but Polanski as a filmmaker knows how the camera works and he knows how to build tension in a scene. So I know that people have complained that that particular movie felt too stage bound, but I don't know. I think... I think when you give it a close reading, I think he's doing good, th interesting things with editing and with cinematography to make it feel more cinematic than it might have been. Do you know much about like theater and playwrights beyond the expected cultural stuff for someone of your standing? Not really. I mean, I took I took English as a minor in undergrad and I'm like. Uh, a casual theater goer, you know, I, I, I like your, I, I like Beckett. I like Pinter and I like, I like some Oscar Wilde. I like all the, all the famous names, you know, man, in that Robin Williams documentary, they show the Steve Martin, Robin Williams waiting for Godot. Ah, would have loved to have been in that audience, but I wouldn't have been because I see no theatrical productions because it's way too expensive and I can't afford it. It would have been interesting to see because it looks like Robin Williams was riffing through it. Like in that clip, you, you, we, heard, we heard him do the Twilight Zone theme and it's like, gotta hand it to a guy who will just riff through a Samuel Beckett play. You know, I think it'd be interesting. I think maybe we need to focus in. I, we do like a Shakespeare episode before we would do just like plays to films, I would say. We should do a Shakespeare episode. Or even David Mamet. Now that's a filmmaker you can dig into. I have some very mixed feelings about him <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame he died before 9-11 happened <laughs> yes all right well thank you very much for this letter and as per usual you can send us your questions at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com this week on our patreon we're going back to old territory. What are we talking about, Will? We are following up on our classic episode about Godfrey Ho, the famous cut-and-paste filmmaker who made over 40 movies with the word ninja in the title. And we're going back to him because 
we've made many discoveries since then. We've seen many different films that he's made and that people around him have made, but also because pretty much every fact that we said on that episode was wrong. Oh, yeah. Almost 100% wrong. So. And and this, of course, ties into the new Gold Ninja video DVD release, Ninja Vortex, where you collected- Blu-ray release. Uh, sorry, Blu-ray release. Pardon me. Where you collected a bunch of his films and the films of his colleagues. Uh, so you can listen to that conversation at patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club by becoming a $5 member. And you can also buy the Ninja Vortex release, which has endless- talk about Godfrey Ho and friends and somehow we talked about stuff that doesn't get mentioned on the disc so you want to get both of them and you can get that uh, disc set at goldninjavideo.com it's only $20 for three discs of Godfrey Ho and friends goodness nine movies four commentary track seven featurettes and a trailer reel where every trailer has ninja in the title and they're all movies that were released by IFD and Filmark (laughs) So, which is crazy. Uh, will you go insane if you watch it all in one sitting? I don't know. You'll have to watch it to find out. So what are we doing next week? Next well, week, we are going to travel to New York in the early 1980s. We are looking at the films of the no wave scene. That is the filmmakers, the artists, people who are living in the Lower East Side, creating strange, transgressive, very low budget cinema. There's a huge canon of these movies. Filmmakers like Nick Zed, Richard Kern, Beth B., Amos Poe, even a young Jim Jarmusch began in this scene. Uh, We're not touching Jim Jarmusch, though. Yeah, he'll be his own episode at some point. It's crazy we haven't got to him yet. I, I don't think his name has ever come up once doing the show. That is crazy. Yeah, I like him. I'm a fan. I don't think we've entirely finalized what we're going to be doing, but I'm pretty sure we're going to be talking about Nick Zed's They Eat Scum. Probably something by Beth B. Probably something by Amos Poe. Um, Yeah, we'll see how it goes. I wonder, do people actually watch any of the movies we say that we're going to talk about next week? Let us know on the Discord or just tweet at us. I'm curious. (laughs) I don't think anybody does, but, you know, if you do. And probably fewer than ever this week. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, everybody wants to know about the No Wave movement. It's what's on the tip of everybody's tongue. Okay, hey, I I got a recommendation. Everybody listening to this podcast, watch Fingered by Richard Kern, starring Lydia Lunch. Uh, Don't listen to Will. (laughs) Watch it and get the whole family in and just have a great time. All right, so that's what we'll be talking about next week. So until then, I'm Justin Nicole. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Justin interrupting briefly to thank some new Patreon subscribers, who include Randy Rivett, Robert Krantz, Jordan Friedland, Matthew Blencarn, and William Cumby. Thank you very much for your support. We couldn't do it without you. And now we return you to your regular scheduled programming. Well, Justin, I did something that I almost never do these days, which is I saw a movie in public this week. And by public, you meant in the comfort of your own car, surrounded by strangers. That's right. I literally rented a car and went to the Docks Drive-In in Toronto to see a screening of the glorious new 4K restoration of David Cronenberg's Crash. And the idea of seeing Crash at a drive-in sounds great on paper. I gotta say it was not that great. I mean, look... I'm happy to get out of the house and do anything these days. (laughs) I'm happy to have an activity. It was fun to drive. Uh, I don't drive much anymore either. Wait, did you drive? I did drive, yes. Were you by yourself? (laughs) Uh, Yes, I was, which is incredible. It's like that that archetype of the lonely guy that drives. It's because my girlfriend was caring for our sick dog, so she wasn't able to come. And it's not like I can invite anyone else. It's like I can't can't be in a car with anyone. (laughs)
But like it was a sold out screening, wasn't it? Yeah, there were a lot of people there. And the movie looked like it was being projected from a laptop, which is not great when the move like three quarters of the movie take place at night. I can guarantee you it was projected from a laptop, an HDMI plugged into it, which is fine. But why? Like the dog's drive in is an they're there permanently why don't they have a bright projector they're in the city what is going on oh my god it looked it looked so awful i mean i could barely follow the second half of the movie so much of it it was just so dark and also for the first half of the movie there was r&b music coming from a nearby event which (laughs) just about crowded like drowned out everything why is there an event going on during this pandemic i don't know but uh you've never seen crash until you've seen it with an r&b soundtrack (laughs) So it was like going to the 42nd Street Drive-In, right, Will? Uh, actually, that's a lie. The screen would have been bright and you could have probably heard the muffled sound. Right, but I guess I could theoretically have masturbated in my car to this movie. So that's <laughs> why it's like the 42nd Street Drive-In or 42nd Street Grindhouse. Uh, well, I hope all these drive-ins that are popping up will actually try to improve this stuff or they don't because they go, you don't got any better, you suckers. We can give you even darker projection and you would still come. Speaking of quality of movie theaters, haven't been good for that long. Haven't been very good uh, for the last, I don't know, 15 years, I would say, since um, 35mm went away when certain norms just kind of disappeared. Yeah, no, it's true. And I always feel like I'm a Luddite when I talk about this, when I talk about how much better film was. But I mean, look, ever since film was taken away, do movie theaters like do the proper masking? No. No, they never do. Does the image look brighter than it used to? No, it looks a lot darker. It looks way darker. Um, and yeah. and yeah, I mean, I just saw a crash at a drive-in seemingly from a laptop and it looked awful. I bet that if it had been on 35 millimeter, it would have been nice and bright. The bulb would have probably been, you know, a standard that it has to hit as opposed to, I think that in the theaters, what really gave them the gall to turn the darkness really low is because it makes the bulbs last longer and it's because 3d was projected really low with dark so they're like if people are watching it 3d and they're paying more for it we'll just leave it like that we won't touch it yeah and that just became the norm and you know it'll probably stay like that considering that the paramount decree was finally struck down what is that will oh my goodness well the paramount decree was the thing that i guess helped lead to the end of the studio era because it basically it was a famous supreme court decision that ruled movie studios could not own theaters do you know where like what prompted it like why would they have made that like it means it makes sense on paper of like antitrust lawsuits but you know everyone in politics are corrupt so why would they force that through who are they trying to destroy god i don't know it's been forever since you know film 101 but basically, studios could get guaranteed block booking for all of their product to every theater, basically. And then this decree uh, ended that, and it, it opened up for more like independent uh, theaters and exhibitors. And it also changed the way they had to sell movies, because now it was based even more on like what would be a success, what won't. I mean, that's what caused Poverty Row films to disappear, because they were just a product to fill a gap. And now they didn't need that anymore because it was based on how much someone would enjoy the individual piece played at a movie theater. But now that's gone. And so companies like Netflix are going to buy so many friggin' theaters and just play their Netflix movies. Amazon's going to do the same thing. Welcome to Disney theaters. There will be Disney theaters. I've long predicted that like in 10 years... 
every big city will have one theater and it'll be arena sized and Disney will own it and it will play uh, Star Wars and Avengers and Pixar movies and everything else will go straight to streaming. Yeah, yeah, definitely straight to streaming because did you see that Disney said they stop, they're stopping making 4K Blu-rays? of all Disney stuff and Fox titles. Yeah, I was sad to see that. And I think they're still making 1080 Blu-rays. I think the issue was that 4K was almost like a beta format. It never took off in the way that they hoped that it was going to. So it doesn't make financial sense. And because it never took off, the materials are still very expensive because they haven't been streamlined like something that Blu-ray has. And even Blu-ray, the materials to get them are not as popular as DVD, which are still very popular. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, I guess I just, I guess I assumed just from the tenor of discussion about this on Twitter that it was a big move to basically end the physical media market. Oh, it definitely is. It's going to get there at some point. But for now, it's just the 4K stuff is being eliminated from the table. I mean, Disney... I, I guess you get to own their movies, but they treated their films like crap, like DNRing all their animated films. Ugh. It's sickening to see. Sickening. No contextual special features or anything like that. Cause it's all happy time in Disney World. Disney used to be great in the early 2000s. Do you remember those silver-tinned oh, Walt yeah. Disney Treasures releases? Those were fantastic. Hi, I'm Leonard Maltin <laughs> on every day. It was great they had Leonard Maltin because he could provide historical context. Yep, but now no historical context, none of that. Just streaming flubber, I guess, on that first page where people will rediscover it just like we did and have happy, fun family times. 